to another side, episode 22. I'm JK, taking over the show again. I'm joined by Dom Hardman and Scenario Neil. For once, I got that one correctly. And uh, today, we are joined by the guest who does this. Great awareness from the centre. He takes on Perry for pace. And Snyman is there. We are joined by Andre Snyman. Andre, how are you doing? How's lockdown? Hi, I'm good, Jason. How are you doing, man? Locked up is... Uh... Interesting times, but you know we're trying to make the best of it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, what, what's been keeping you busy? I know, uh, obviously, we've spoken previously. You've got some uh, clubs trying to tap you up for coaching, etc. Is it just planning and getting ready for next season, or have you got? Yeah, the main, the main thing, the main thing that that keeps me busy right now is the honey do list. You know, um, <laughs> so there's quite a few, a uh, few of those around the house that I have to do. Uh, unfortunately. You know, I, uh, I've been furloughed by the school where I'm uh, a head coach, uh, which is, I guess, a lot of people have been furloughed by their companies. It's obviously a standard thing. Initially, I thought uh, it's a bad thing, uh, but now I understand why they're doing it, um, which is understandable. Um, so, yeah, I'm just at home doing a lot of self-reflection uh, as a coach, uh, trying to find ways to improve me and myself as a coach, looking at different systems, structures, um, small things, you know, how can you improve your delivery of a session, um, doing a lot of the uh, webinars and uh, links like last night I was doing the one of Stuart Lancaster, the defensive one, yeah. um, just looking at things. It's nothing new, you know, but every now and again, when you, when you repeat watching these things, you might pick up one thing that that's different and that's all you need. You only need that one or two things that's different. We all know how to put up a defensive structure and how to teach the players how to tackle and all that stuff. But it's just something small sometimes that you pick up from other coaches, um, you know, um, and then there's another webinar that I'm really enjoying. It's called um, world after sport. It's the transition of rugby players. What do they do after they've uh, retired with rugby as well as coaches uh, transitioning into uh, being a coach, um, those kind of things. So listening to those kind of things, it's really, really interesting. Um, yeah, and that's basically, and then obviously keep in touch with uh, the director of rugby at the school, keeping um, him, um, him and I, we, we keep a close relationship on preseason. What are we going to do with preseason coming up with the kids at school? Um, how are we going to put out the message to them and those things? So yeah, that's, that's pretty much what I'm keeping myself busy with. Yeah. So how do you mention the, sorry, JK, so the, the world after sport, it actually ties into a question I was going to ask you anyway. Um, obviously, you had a glittering career, uh, 38 caps for the Spring block, uh, Springboks, um, you know, played for, for many different clubs as well. Um, the transition from player to coach, is that something that was forced upon you? Is that something you decided for a long time before or did you struggle with it? Um, a couple of things. I mean, I'm going to just share my thoughts on that. Um, so in my situation, when I retired, uh, and luckily I was fortunate, it wasn't retiring because of an injury. It was purely, I just, my body just had enough. Um, in actual fact, at the time, Stuart Lancaster offered me an extension of my contract at Leeds, but I just said to him, I'm sorry, I, I just had enough, I'm done. Um, and, or went back to South Africa. Went back there, um, mixed emotions, you know, uh, missing the game and everything. And then basically I said to myself, I need a break. So for <clears> about 18 months, I basically took a celibate of rugby. I didn't watch rugby. I didn't uh, go to the Sharks, uh, watch their games. I didn't coach. I did nothing. I absolutely pushed my energy into a completely different direction, which was um, construction because I studied civil engineering. So I went into construction uh, um, worked for a company in Durban who's ran by one of my great friends, helped him out as a, uh, uh, what you call it, a project manager. And um, just to take my mind off rugby completely. And probably about 18 months down the line, having a barbecue or braai, as we say in South Africa, mm -hmm. um, one of my friends, and some of you might know him, Sean von Rensburg, um, he used to play in, uh, in Wales. Um, we're standing there having a barbecue and he just said to me, Andre, you being very selfish. And I looked at him and I didn't know whether I should take that as an insult or what. And I said, what do you mean? He says, you've got 15 years of experience, rugby experience. Um, why are you not sharing it? Why are you not sharing it with, with, with people? And I thought about it and I thought to myself, do I really want to go into coaching? Because being a coach is pretty much being a player. But the only difference is you're not on the pitch. 
You're mm. not playing, but you, you're sacrificing every weekend. You're sacrificing your training time. You're sacrificing time with your family. And it's now family time. My, my rec playing career is over. So that's why I never wanted to go into coaching. But listening to him, and it made a point. And, and I was like, he's right. I, I need to give back. Um, and then I started coaching at a school or a club uh, locally in Durban. I went on to all my courses and IRB levels and all that stuff. Went on there, started coaching, and I really enjoyed it. I actually enjoyed giving back to the kids, um, just helping them you know, understand the game and look for things. Because if you've played at the level international, you know what works and what doesn't work. So when you coach, you don't really have to worry about trying to figure out what works. You just go back to basics. You keep it simple, and you teach these kids what works. Um, and then it's just easier that way. So it spares them time and heartache and frustration on coach. How do I do this coach? You just say, dude, this is how you do it. Trust me. It works. That's because that's how it's done. Um, and then I, I never, ever wanted to be like an, a, a head coach because I, I did it as a sideline because the construction was still my mainstream. Mm -hmm. And then I, funny enough, we had a conversation and Sean said to me, would you be interested why don't you go coach overseas? And I was like, okay. And I looked at that. I looked at England, looked at France, looked everywhere. And there were so many coaches being recycled everywhere and clubs. You know, I pushed my CV out probably to about 50, 60 odd clubs. And there was maybe one or two that came back or that showed interest and everything. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I didn't even know they exist, was a club in Denver, Colorado in America. And which was at the time, one of the biggest clubs in America, the best facility, I guess up to date, they still the best facility. And there was a South African guy being the backline coach there. And we connected and he just said to me, would you be interested? And I said, yes. And they said they would like to start up a sevens program. They don't have a sevens program. Would I be interested? And I said, absolutely. And then I, and that's how I ended up uh, in America for eight years, um, being at the club went from heading up the sevens program, then progressed into 15s because sevens is not played throughout the year, um, went into the 15s program as a technical advisor, then as a backline coach, and then being the full-time head coach for five years, back-to-back uh, -back championship coach. Um, yeah, and then that's how I got into coaching. But to answer your question, the transition, it, it was difficult because as a player, you know every day what you're going to do at what time of the day how it's going to be done how long it's going to take you you know basically exactly everything is done for you all you need to do is just rock up and get it done um, all of a sudden that has been taken away from you so you wake up in the morning and you're like okay what am i going to do now where do i have to be so you have that like doubt that unsurety what's next and stuff like that so it was get trying to create a routine because unfortunately rugby players are we and I think humans are creatures of habit and all of a sudden that routine is taken away from you. Um, and it's like, okay, hold on. What do I need to do? That's the one thing. The second thing was during my career, I wish that I had more support and more guidance in terms of what's going to happen afterwards uh, in terms of financial, you know, planning, you're planning for your, the, the medical, you know, because once you finish with rugby, you know, you're on your own. You've got to pay your own medical bills, you know, depending on which country you are, obviously. Um, then it's like pension, you know. What, nobody told me anything about pension fund. Pensions when you're 25 years old, earning a good couple of quid and everything. Nobody thinks about what happens when you're 60 years old and all of a sudden you don't work anymore. Nobody, so you don't think about that. And uh, So I just wish... I had that advice um, and, and, and I see hopefully now slowly but surely the agents are coming in, talking to the kids in academies, showing to them, right, while you earn money, you have to put a percentage away for your slush fund, put certain percentage away for your medical, for your pension. And if, if you do have any money left, then go and splash and buy your watches and your Xboxes and your motorbikes and your jet skis and all that stuff. Um, so that is the one thing, the transition I was, financially it's like you don't have that security anymore you don't have that monthly no at the end of the month i'm going to get x amount of pounds or dollars or rands or whatever where now that you work you don't know where the next paycheck is going to come from um, where with rugby you know that's my contract 
set for three years, I'm getting that income. So that was an adjustment as well. And it's, it's nerve wracking knowing you don't know, you know, where's the next paycheck coming from. Um, so that transition was pretty daunting, you know, um, to go. And then the third thing was, sadly, once you retire, it's almost like you're an outcast. You know, there's not a system, not a lot of clubs have a system where they keep in touch with the ex-players, where they can get the ex-players involved, um, bring them back to the club. Because at the end of the day, that ex-player, he still loves rugby. He's going to have kids. Where's his kids going to go? His kids going to go into yeah. the youth program potentially. But just to put an old player away and just not even offer him maybe one free ticket for a match or something like that. It's just, you're basically out there on your own, you know, um, it's, it's, it's tough. You know, it's, it's, it's sad that some clubs don't have the funds to be able to say to the old players or the ex players say, Hey, let's stay involved in the club and how can we get them involved? And because there's some ex players out there that that's got successful businesses and they would like to give back to the club, but because the club has treated them with a cold shoulder, they feel like, why should I get involved again? You know, um, you know, there might be players that say, you know what, I'm talking nonsense. Um, there might be players agreeing with me, but that I can just talk about my own opinion. That's how I feel. It's just sad that some clubs have the opinion like, why should I invest all this time and money in a player to go and make him better somewhere else? Uh, it's, but if you invest time into a player, and you give them an opportunity to be involved in the club again at whatever, whatever level, you know, that player might stay there. And then th that's how networking starts and the community and, and stuff like that. So those were the three things that, that I find difficult to, to do the transition. But the fact that I'm a coach now, it helps me to try and change that. It's, it helps me to try and where the shortfalls that I saw, that hopefully I can now fill those gaps you know, and, and, and strike up a relationship with players leaving a school or a club or something like that and try and keep them involved and invite them to a training practice um, or, or something like that. You know, it's, uh, that's what I'm trying to see if there, if, if there is a bridge there uh, that we can, can use. Yeah. That's, uh, that seems, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing how, how quickly that drop off is between experts considering, you know, there's a big focus on loyalty when you're playing, playing for a team you know you don't get these players go around chasing money like you do in football for example and like the Premier League and stuff like that you know you know you don't get many controversial transfers you know people leave for sort of valid reasons and are committed for, for valid reasons mm. so yeah to hear, to hear the drop-off is uh, it's quite sad right, isn't it I mean to, to be fair that drop-off actually happens within the club while you have a contract I mean if you get an injury even if you signed a three-year contract with a club and you know 18 months into your contract, you get a, a knee injury that, that's going to put you out for four or five months. Trust me, the drop-off happens very quickly because that old saying, out of sight, out of mind. You know, yeah. all of a sudden for six months, you, you and the physiotherapist become best friends. You know, all of a sudden, you know, your teammates don't get in touch with you anymore because you can't go out on the, on the piss. You can't go and have beers with them. You know, the coach doesn't really connect with you because you're not at training anymore because you're not, you're not, you're no good for the team at the time because you've got an injury. So they put you almost on the back burner. Sometimes it happens. It, unfortunately, it's just the human way. You do get some coaches that are really involved and they really take interest in their injured players. But unfortunately, you know, sometimes you're just a piece of meat. You know, they play. You got an injury. They put you on the shelf until you're ready, and then they bring you back as if nothing happened. Um, you know, it's unfortunately it's a business. You know, if you don't perform, they get the next person that performs. Um, it's it's just uh, the nature of the beast. So is there a mental impact on a player who could be sidelined and just, for example, four or five months like a knee injury and then they just slowly, slowly stop hearing from people at the club? You know, have you, have you ever had experience within that? Oh, well, definitely. I mean, I, mean, if, if, um, I don't know if you know my history. I mean, I broke <clears> my ankle in 99, literally two, three weeks before we had to go to the 99 World Cup. Um, I broke my ankle against New Zealand scoring in the corner um, and that set me back nine months. Um, before I could play my first game. Um, so it was a long road back. Um, literally played two games. And unfortunately, I broke the other ankle, the left one. So it put me back another nine months. Um, so I was for two years, I was out of the game. Um, mentally, it's tough. It's, it, it's tough to, to get back from there 
Um, like I say, the only support you have is your family, the physiotherapist or your doctor, you know, and then the, the person that's going to help you in the gym getting stronger. You know, you do lose touch with the team uh, because you have nothing in common. You can't train with them. Uh, you do lose touch with the coaches because they have nothing to say to you because they can't give you any feedback on your game or anything. So you lose touch with them. And it's a tough, it's a tough road back. Uh, unfortunately, if you do get an injury, like I say, it's, it's, you have to surround yourself with people that are positive, people that believe in you, that you will come back stronger uh, and stuff like that. I mean, nowadays, I guess it's so professional. They probably have psych psychiatrists and psychologists and, you know, and all those things that help the players. But uh, I can just speak from my time, you know, it was pretty much yourself. It's you, you, your wife or your fiance or your girlfriend, your mom, your dad. If you had kids, those are the people that around you that kept you, positive um you know and believed in you and then obviously it was yourself you had to prove to yourself to get back there um if you wanted to or you can just go curl up in a corner and cry and say oh whoa me feel sorry for myself um no but unfortunately sportsmen we're not like that we we're competitive we want to get back uh but yeah it definitely has a mental impact um especially if it's a career-ending injury if it's a career-ending injury i think it's it's more of a mental blow than an injury where you know you could potentially come back. If it's a career-ending injury, which touch wood I've never had and will never will have, mm -hmm. um, so that is a completely different animal that you're dealing with. Is is the fact that all of a sudden that lifeline has literally been stripped from you. Uh, where if it's an injury like a hamstring tear, mm -hmm. you know if I do the right rehab the right way, I'll get back to play. But yeah. if it's a career-ending injury, it's it's stripped away from you. It's gone. You know? In terms of your go back to your sort of um, uh, international career, I just wanted to ask you a question: Is there a certain match that sticks in your head? Is there a certain game that really stands out above all the others? Is it would it be your debut, or, or is there another game that in particular really string? You know, rings there's home? there's a couple of games. I mean, just off the top of my head, there's three games that um, that stands out. I mean, um, the first one is obviously your debut game. You know, the, the debut game is, I, I think every player will agree with me that is, it's a big thing, you know, the first time you put on that jersey. Uh, the second one is probably when South Africa beat Australia uh, to, be, to, to win the Tri-Nations in 1998. Mm -hmm. that, uh, that was quite a, a, a special game. Uh, we played it at uh, in Johannesburg. And then the third one, Sorry, guys. It was in 1997 yeah, uh, against England. Against England, when I scored the the individual oh, try. Yeah. Oh, right, that's the apology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So apology stands. Now, that's fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so that was those are pretty much the, the the three that just popped up to me. You know, I mean, but sometimes, you know, people will ask me, "Oh, do you remember remember this game?" And I'm like, I have no idea. I can't yeah. remember to be honest. I, because I mean, I was a kind of player. I was so in the zone. Um, you know, that sometimes I would walk off the field and I'll say to my teammates, did we win? You know, because I'm such and so in the zone. I, I don't look at the scoreboard. I was like, like, I don't know. All I knew is we won because the boys are jumping up and down around me. But I mean, there are some games that I've played the whole game. And I can't remember one minute of the game because... I was just so focused on what I need to do that I actually forgot to enjoy the game sometimes, you know, it just happens, you know, it's just one of those things. Yeah. One question I've got, you referenced, um, obviously you broke your ankle back in 99 against the All Blacks. Yeah. So you're the one and you're, set, and, and you're going about pushing yourself, you, get, you, you feel that you're getting pushed away further and further from the team. Did that, was that the spark that kind of push you from bulls to sharks? Or? Uh, no, but the, the spark that, that made me go to the sharks, I mean, funny enough, I was born in Natal. So I've always been, uh, a, 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 in those days, a banana boy or a, a Natal <laughs> supporter, shark supporter. Mm -hmm. uh, the reason why I played for the bulls is because I went up to Pretoria to go and study. And that's how I ended up in Pretoria uh, because of my uh, universities uh, mm -hmm. started playing for the Bulls. But while I was playing for the Bulls, I always wanted to go to, to play when I saw or when I realized that I could actually play professional rugby because I never wanted to be a professional rugby player. I just wanted to study and then go back to the farm. Yeah. Um, and then, <laughs> I, then obviously I realized, OK, hang on, you know, I can actually maybe play professionally and then I went that route managed to get into the team 
started playing for the, the Bulls. And then at the same time, it was an era where the Sharks was really, really good. You know, it's like Andre Joubert and Henry Honeyball and, mm. and all those guys. And they won the Curry Cup like three, four times in a row. And I said to myself, damn, one day I want to play for that team because I just didn't really enjoyed the way, the style of rugby they were playing. It was like open rugby and, you know, everybody was running. It wasn't this like uh, pick and go and kick. And it was really running rugby like the old French used to do. And I always said to myself, I would love to go. If I've got the opportunity, I would love to play for the Sharks. And then, but unfortunately, having a contract with the Bulls, you tied into the contract. And then at the end of that contract, you know, the, the Sharks did offer me a contract, but the Bulls had a clause in my contract, first right of refusal. So they refused to, to let to release me to go to the Sharks. So I had to stay at the Bulls for another two years. Mm. And at the end of 99, when my contract, but when I re-signed with the Bulls for the extra two years, I made sure that that clause is not in my contract because I didn't want them to refuse again. So at the end mm. of 99, uh, that's why I went to the Sharks. It's not uh, sparked by injury or anything. It was just purely, I wanted to go back home. Uh, I wanted to go back home to the Natal, wanted to go back to a team that I enjoy watching and that I felt that I could be uh, contributing to the style of rugby they're playing. Um, we've been asking a lot of our guests recently um, for basically to pull up a, a sort of top 15 um, of players that you've played with in your career. Um, we, I think it's a bit easy if we did either played with or coached, but I think if you, if you had to pick sort of your, your top 15 of guys you played with, who would you pick? Um, okay, number one will probably be Osterant. Mm -hmm. uh, hooker would probably be uh, Sean Fitzpatrick. Yeah, we had him on the okay. other day. If you didn't say that, we have got Sean. <laughs> <laughs> it would have been a cheeky phone call. <laughs> yeah. um, the number three, oh gosh, props. Um, probably Jason Leonard. Oh, good show. Yeah. Uh, four would probably be uh, Victor Matfield. Five would be John Eels. Oh, nice. Um, six would probably be, oh gosh, there's, there's, that's a good one. Mm. I would go with, uh, gosh, that's, that's an interesting one. Six, six, six. I'm trying to think. It's a guy called Ruben Kruger. I mean, he played for South Africa, Ruben Kruger. Mm -hmm. Seven is uh, Richie McCraw. Uh, eight will probably be, oh gosh, it's between Francois Pina and Zinzan Brook will be those two, between those two. Uh, then nine, without a doubt, U.S. van der mm. Ten would be between, oh, probably Mertens. Mm -hmm. Mertens. Um, ten. Eleven will be, obviously, Jonah. Yeah, uh, Jonah. Fourteen. Uh, no, wait, wait. Twelve. Twelve will be Daniel Herbert. Mm. Thirteen. Tano Manga. Hmm. Uh, Fourteen will be James Small. And then fifteen. Andre Joubert. And just to top it off, the, that's a hell of a team, by the way. But uh, <laughs> yeah, it off. Um, who would you have coaching them? And you can't see yourself. Uh, Nick Mallet. Sure. Very nice. Play. So, I'll, I'll be I'll be assistant coach. Oh, cool. <laughs> cool. You cool. That, I don't know if uh, JK and Dom have noticed this, but every time we ask uh, someone to do this, they never include themselves in the team. Uh, <laughs> I put my name down first every time. <laughs> first on the team. If I don't shout about myself, no one's going. So uh, not to worry. Um, obviously, you moved across to uh, to the UK. What what what's in fact obviously sparking? Talk about sparking moves. What sparked the move from South Africa to the UK? Uh, well, in two, so in 2003, I, unfortunately, we, I ran into a bit of a political situation um, in South Africa with team selections. Mm -hmm. So um, once again, I wasn't selected for the 2003 World Cup. So I decided, you know what, at that stage, I was 29 years old. Um, I knew I probably had a couple of years left in me. Um, so why not give it a go and see what's on the other side of the pond? 
Um, and that's, that's what sparked it. If, uh, if I went to the 2003 World Cup, I probably would never have come to England. I probably would have just played the World Cup and then stayed in South Africa. Um, unfortunately, the, the disappointment of not going to the World Cup sparked me to come to England and, uh, and basically play here for a couple of years as a, get a retirement package, so to speak, and then go home. Um, so that, that was the idea. Uh, so that, that's what the reason why I came to England. Because mm, obviously speaking of the 2003 World Cup, you, you, you debuted on that day on the World Cup. Uh, was it the final when England decided to go and win it? Yeah. Uh, against, who was it against? I think I debuted for, again, for Leeds against Northampton. Yeah. Came off the bench. So yes. we played in, played in white jerseys. <laughs> but, so I bet you were, were loving watching the uh, replays of uh, Australia going down. At the very yeah, exactly. My <laughs> mate was at the game in, uh, in Australia with his dad. And he's always said, he said he was, it was amazing how quickly Nike had gone out and decorated a load of billboards. He said, yeah. by the time they left the stadium, there were, there were posters everywhere going, Return of the Empire. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the guy, you know, he earned his money that day. You know, uh, but, but obviously, you know, South Africa last year, great result in the World Cup. I mean, not so yeah. great. Absolutely. Uh, it's, uh, I was trying not result. to mention it. <laughs> oh, very right. good reason. It was going to come out eventually, wasn't it? <laughs> but I mean, you know, props to South Africa. You absolutely took us apart. I say that's like I was on the pitch. Um, but you took us apart, you know, like we did to New Zealand, effectively, the week before. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, fantastic. You know, great. I mean, a lot of people say England played their final uh, in the semi-final. But you know what? At the end of the day, if you want to win a trophy, you got to win all your games. Um, so it's, yeah. it's just, it just, just unfortunate. Of, it was just one of those World Cups. You just didn't know who was going to come out on top. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, let's look at in the group stages. I mean, look at uh, Fiji holding uh, Australia until like the 55th minute, you know, and then all of a sudden they went out. Japan, who would have ever thought Japan was going to go as far as they did? Phenomenal. You know, it was just uh, given, uh, 20, given 2015, the, the omens were there to be fair. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's funny when you look at Japan, obviously, Bill Bowman now back in uh, taking the helm of world rugby. And he's already stated that they're going to be a tier one nation and likely to come into the uh, rugby championship. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, but you know, it's very questionable if you look at the Jap Japanese team, you know, how many players are actually Japanese? Yeah. You know, exactly. um, so that's, that's also questionable. And not just the Japan team. If you look at some other teams, there's a lot of, you know, like the French team. I mean, I think South Africa and a few other teams are pretty much the only team that is actually true South Africans or true to their country. Um, it's yeah. just the game. The game has evolved in such a way that it builds bridges between countries where players can live there for four or five years, and then all of a sudden they become citizens, which is not a problem. But I'm just saying, you know, if that is the case, you will get teams getting stronger and stronger because you're going to have the influence from stronger players from other countries coming in to strengthen their team. But if you take a true, true Japanese team. Um, I don't think they'll be that strong, but because of the Fijian influence and the Tongan influence and even South African influence, you know, you've got that key players that can make a difference. Yeah. Yeah. Also, leading up to the World Cup, obviously, they, I think they spent the most days together as an international team, um, which is obviously, you know, a big part of their success. Going into the, you know, if they do eventually come into the Rugby Championship, they won't, and they won't be able to spend that as much time as they had before the World Cup together as a squad. Do you think that'll, that'll play a part as well? You know, you see a few, a few of the Japanese players getting contracts overseas. They're not, they won't necessarily be allowed back for the amount of training as they were. I mean, I think obviously the success from, of any rugby team is consistency, you know, um, of any sport, basically. Uh, if you can do the same thing consistently, you know, you'll be successful. So, yeah, being a team away, I mean, unfortunately, that's why teams like America, uh, this is one of the teams that's popped to mind. It's because the players, they get together uh, like maybe two weeks or so, or maybe even a week before international. They get together. They force these players together. Now you've got 25 players playing all different game plans, all different structures. Now you're forcing them to play one structure. Uh, before international, of course, there's going to be chaos. Um, so, you know, so it's definitely going to play a role. If you have some of those Japanese players playing in France, uh, in Europe or wherever, or in the UK, and then all of a sudden you're going to get together for 
international, they won't be as good. You know, yes, everybody can catch a ball and pass and tackle and make a decision, but not everybody plays the same. Uh, yeah, you have not seen Neil play. But it's that it's that consistency. <laughs> it's that consistency, the cohesion, the you know that brotherhood that's that's not there. You know, and to try and force it uh, within two weeks. You know, yeah, you might get it right. Then you're more of in a barbarian team environment, you know, where the guys just want to get together, throw the ball around and have a pint. Um, but if you really, really want to be successful, you need to have your team together for a long time so that everybody's on the same page. Everybody understands each other. Because a lot of, as you know, for you guys have played rugby, sometimes it's about reading body languages. You know, you read your players your next to you's body language. And you need time to get to know your player next to you. And you can't do that in a week. No, you, you need at least a month or more understanding. If you see the look in that player's eyes, then you know what he's going to do and you can react. So that's how fine-tuned the game is getting, that you, look, you just look at players' body languages and you know what's going to happen. Obviously, um, you brought up the USA there quite well. Obviously, they're going through – USA rugby are going through some major issues with regards to going corrupt. Another, and then the next, you see the next one with the MLR, um, your old team pulling out. Uh, of- yeah, I mean, we've, I mean, to be, I mean, the sad thing, Jason, is that like eight years ago when in 2011, when I arrived in America, um, you know, getting, finding my feet, within a year, I've been warned and I saw the signs on the wall that USA Rugby, there's something wrong. You know, yeah. the way they do things, the way the structures are, the way they spend the money, the, the, the registration fees and all that stuff. They're spending it at the wrong places and at the, at the, on the wrong uh, uh, institutes and stuff like that. So instead of spending the money at club level and youth and all that stuff, they were just messing around with it. And it's, the, the signs were against the wall that there's something's going to happen. Um, and then obviously further down the line, um, we get to where we are right now, where they're filing, filing for bankruptcy and all that stuff. Um, that's the one side of American rugby. The other side of America, the teams, the, uh, the, the competitions, it's very difficult. If you can imagine how big America is. I mean, it's massive. I mean, so it's, it's really difficult for a team on the West side to play in a league that's on the East side or, or, or just be in one league because the, the traveling is going to be so expensive to fly from West to East and all that stuff. Then you have the weather element. Certain uh, states can only play rugby in certain times of the year because of the weather conditions. Um, like a state like California, uh, Texas, and maybe Florida, they can play rugby all year round because it's yeah. warm enough. But states <clears throat> like Colorado, North Dakota, uh, South Dakota, you know, uh, Washington, all those places, it's, it's freezing, it's cold, it's miserable. So they can't play rugby. So you have that factor as well. And then the, the, you've got the ego factor because each state or each um, competition think the way they do it is the right way so and they won't bend or, or bow down to the the next um, uh, county or the next competition or the next like division one or division two that they they're very protective of of their own little domain um, so you've got that issue as well um, and then the biggest one for me is 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 the education of the american the public they don't know what rugby is. There's a very small amount of people that actually know what rugby is. If you ask them, they'll say, oh, yeah, it's that, it's that game you play without helmets and pads. <laughs> you know? um, so the education of the, 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 the Joe Soap on the street is very limited. Mm-hmm. So, and it's not on TV. It's not a regular occurrence on TV. And the reason for that is, is because they don't have time for advertising. If you, can you imagine a game of rugby every four, two minutes they stop the game to put an ad on the TV? Yeah. It's not going to happen. Uh, and then also there's no, um, what's it called, uh, scholarships for, for kids uh, at universities. There's a very small amount of universities that actually offer scholarships uh, to universities, but football, baseball, basketball, all this is massive. So there's all these universities that offer scholarships. So the parents will push their child into a sport where they could potentially get a scholarship to go to university. And that's why they don't push them to go to rugby because what is a kid going to gain from playing rugby? He's not going to gain anything. So, you know, and then they, they play football or, or basketball or whatever until the age of 16, maybe 17. 
they didn't make the cut. They didn't get a, a scholarship. They didn't make the cut to a university. So they decide, okay, let's go play rugby. So now you get all these 17-year-olds or 16-year-olds that's never played rugby in their life, but they mm -hmm. want to try it. So you, you're basically coaching a 17-year-old athlete the way you would coach a seven-year-old. You know, how to catch, how to pass, how to, where to put your head in, in contact. It's those kind of things, you know. They're super athletes. Don't get me wrong. The Americans are super athletes. They're really, really good athletes. Uh, but unfortunately, they're not students of the game. Um, they, and that's where the, the breakdown is. Everybody's talking about the sleeping giant. Um, this giant is going to sleep for, for a long time. It's still going to sleep for a long time because until they, until they push the, 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 the monies and the funding into the right areas of the game to grow the game, it's going to, I mean, it's growing. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's going to take some time. MLR, right. Let's talk about that. Once again, a lot of vibe, a lot of hype, a lot of traction, but how many people are at the games watching the game? Mm. Maybe average 400, 500 people watching a game. You know, that is not enough money, bums in seat to keep, make it a sustainable business because yeah. people don't know what it is. People don't want to watch it. They, they don't know. They, because their grandfather didn't play rugby. Their father didn't play rugby. Their brother didn't play rugby. So there's no culture. There's no track record of rugby in the country. Um, and, and that's why MLR is, 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 is some teams are pulling out because it's financially draining for these teams to keep the play, pay the players, but the gate money and bums and seats doesn't justify. So the return on investment is not, is not there. And so unfortunately, you know, they had the super league a, a while ago in America and that probably lasted for, I don't know, maybe six years. And that was amateur. Um, that lasted six to eight years, I think. Uh, the MLR, I really hope it does stay and I hope it does get more traction. But you got to have a guy with lots of money that's going to come in and know he's just going to pump money into this club and he's not going to get return on it. It's just purely for the love of the game. You know? yeah. So, you think America are more sort of suited to sevens than fifteens? Yes. They prefer I, I 100% agree with you on that. And I'm glad you brought that point up because, first of all, it's easier to explain to the Americans what mm -hmm. rugby is yeah. because there's, it's, it's simpler. There's no rucking and mauling and mm -hmm. the lineouts are easier, are, are easier to explain. The scrum is easier to explain. Um, it's fast. Um, it's seven minutes, halftime, seven minutes. There's lots of action. And the American nation, they love action. They love smacking each other and bashing each other. If you look at all these sports, they love running into each other. You know? Um, love play. That's the other side of it. <laughs> exactly. The terraces, rather than watching, obviously, when you're watching an 80-minute game of rugby, you're, you're dialed into the game, you're watching what's going on. And so now, in a sevens tournament, you're partying. And that's what yeah. Exactly. And, that, and that's, that's what the They're Americans partying. are about. If you look at... If you look at the Americans, they, the, the way they watch football and basketball and baseball, it's, it's a party. It's, it's yeah. like every two minutes you stop and you drink a beer and you eat your peanuts and, you yeah, know, and, 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 and stuff like that. It's, it's, and with rugby, it's not going to happen. With sevens, you could have that atmosphere. You, know, you could have the time to advertise. <clears throat> you could have the time to make it, turn it into a party. And, and, and it's like I said, it's, it's, it's not as complicated to explain to the, to the general public what sevens is all about. You know? So, yes. Sevens is definitely the way to go in America. And do you think the, the success of the US in sevens is because uh, it's, le it's less physical? So obviously where you, you the point before where you have to teach them at 17 how to tackle, how to pass, this and the other. Whereas in sevens, you look at uh, the likes of the two, the, the two speed, uh, Baker and I can't remember his name. Colin. Colin. Colin yeah, Colin. Colin. Obviously their main things is just the fact that they can run bloody fast is that their and um, their dominance obviously you do have one or two in the team who are big brutes who can who can tackle and run and pass but is their dominance strictly because of their um, athletic ability rather than i do, i do believe I, I th you're right i think it's believe their dominance and uh, being athletic you know and i also think that obviously the the change in coaching uh, they brought in mike friday I think Mike is a, is, a, is a really decent coach and I think he saw the qualities in certain players. And uh, instead of just basically trying to develop um, a team of all-round players, I think he, I may be wrong, I think he, like you say, he isolated players. You've got your speedsters, you've got your game makers, you've got your brute players. Um, and it's a well-balanced team where 
at any given time you have your your ball runners, you've got your playmakers, and you've got your finishers, you know. And I think in the past, America would probably would have said, let's pick an all-round player that can do everything, um, you know. Yes, you're going to win games, but you might not be as good. And I think they, he brought in structure, uh, a little bit more a belief, you know. And then also, he brought in the, the, the program where the players uh, got paid to, to be at the Olympic Center in San Diego, so they live there for two, three months at a time. And once again, consistency, you know, where in the past, funny enough, when Matt Hawkins were the, was, when he was the coach, I actually helped him. I was his assistant coach defensively for the Eagles. And, you know, it, 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 that's when it started where they actually paid the players to be part of the team. Before that, they were amateurs. So they would, they'll look at this uh, schedule and they'll see, right, we're playing a tour uh, that day, that day, let's bring the players in two weeks before we get them in, they train for two weeks and then off they go to the tournament. They will never be successful. And then all of a sudden it's changed where they could hand, they could train these players every day for week in, week out, week in, week out. And now that's why the, the, the sevens is so successful because they've got a live in program where the players actually live on the grounds in Chula Vista in San Diego at the Olympic center. So, you know, they're basically professional. And that is why they, they become good at sevens because they could train every day instead of the past where they only train two weeks before a tournament or sometimes even a week before a tournament. Yeah. Which, which is mad because you, you think the, the 15 sets up and start following suit. Given the fact that they've had, massive, they've had good, uh, they've shown how well the USA are doing at sevens because of this structure that they've got going on with training and things like that. Why, why, why are the Eagles not kind of following? It's yeah, it's, it, I mean, it's 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 again, it's 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 the funding thing. It's um, you know, once again, it's a massive country. Um, they don't play enough games in the country to justify the the team being together for a long period of time. You know, mm -hmm. it's the same as the Springboks. I mean, all the Springbok players don't train together for the whole year. They go back and play for their respective provinces, you know, and then they come back two, three, four weeks, maybe a month before they play an international. I mean, it's, it's the same kind of setup. But the thing is, when they do go back to their respective provinces, they play at a high level rugby. They play yeah. when all the players around them are at a high level. All the players around them are professional. All, they train every day, you know, so there's not a real drop-off in terms of uh, quality between international training and playing and, and club rugby, whether they play for the Bulls, the Sharks, the Hurricanes, Crusaders. Where in America, you play for your country and then there's a massive drop-off to go back to your club that's amateur, that only trains on a Tuesday and a Thursday night, you know, and then they, they, the, the league that they play in, they play a team and they beat them 70 points to three. What's, what... What benefit do you get in a team where you beat the, your opposition by 50 points every Saturday? It's a, it's a no-brainer, you know? And that's why if the clubs were able to be professional and they train every day and they're in a, a professional environment, then that player that comes down from the international group and goes straight into that setup where they train every day, they play strength versus strength, now we're talking. Now we're developing players. And that is what the MLR was designed to do. And, and the model is perfect. They, it's just the funding. It's the, the money behind the model. There's not enough money um, behind the MLR to keep it sustainable because there's not enough people coming to the games um, to, to, to make a profit. You know, that's, that's the problem. But the, the, the structure is there. The model is there everything is the right way. They're doing it the right way. But unfortunately, it's, it's the funding, it's the sustainability of it. Yeah. So you talk about, um, obviously, just jump back to the whole, uh, the MLI model and the scholarship stuff. Obviously, they're introducing a collegiate draft. Is that too soon, do you reckon? Because a, a few people I've spoken to think, you know, a lot, of, a lot of other players who haven't played at college or come from other, you know, other rugby areas, are going to get missed because of this of this new draft system. Yeah, no, man, definitely. I mean, it's, it's going to be missed. I mean, I saw this week there was an article, yeah, in the UK about uh, the academies, the academies in the UK um, swapping up all these kids, and then a lot of talent is being 
looked over. We're missing a lot of talent at youth level because of these academies. Um, so the draft, yeah, I mean, it's got a, it's, it's positives and negatives. Um, you know, my question is, it's all good and well you draft the college kids in and they play at college level and they play for their college and mom and dad is paying their ways and the college might pay their travel costs and stuff like that. Now you've, you've spent three or four years developing this player at college level. Okay. Now he leaves college. Where does he go? What's the point in developing this player, spending all this time and making him a superstar or great player? Where is he going to go? To which club is he going to go to? Because the clubs are not professional. So now yeah. you ask us, you know, so there's a disconnection between the, 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 the colleges being semi-professional, let's call it semi-professional, you know, because the kid is going to be at college. He's probably going to train three times a day instead of two times a day, or maybe even four times a day. You know, he's going to get there, maybe proper coaching. Um, so you're developing, you, you've got a great product, but when he finishes, when he, when he graduates, where does he go? You know, is he going to go into a system where he can continue with what he's just started, continue being in a club where they train every day, get good coaching, get good competition, playing against strength versus strength. Um, is that there? Is that structure there? Is that there for him when he leaves the college? That is my question, you know, and, and yeah. once again, if the MLR has a sustainability Yes, then I'll say it's a great program because now that college kid can go through college, he can go into the draft, he can continue, play for three, four years, graduate, and he goes straight into an MLR team. You know, now we're developing youth players because now that player can play for MLR, which means, which is directly linked to the USA Eagles. So that is, and that's what they do. I mean, I can only speak from South Africa point of view. You know, that's what they do. They play at university when they play at university or the varsity cup from there, they go to either an Academy or they go to the blue bulls, the sharks, the lions, wherever the stormers, you know, and they, they, they keep on playing at a high level and they keep on being coached at a high level. And that is why South Africa, I think if you look <clears> at all the youngsters coming through, they superb kids, they absolutely superb kids coming through because they've been coached from a young age, the right way, they in the right system that look after them and that that's, there's a pathway. There's a pathway yeah. between college and the transition to, to big man rugby, you know? So do you think it's uh, a bit of a jump from the league to introduce this? Because obviously all other major American sports have this drafting system. You know, will it, do you think it's a bit to uh, attract bigger, you know, viewing of it or, you know, give it a bit more publicity? You see, once again, I think America is trying to do the college draft <clears throat> copying the football. They're trying to copy the yeah. football model. Uh, once again, it's not football. Uh, the, rec the students, they will, I mean I, I, I mean, I can tell you, if you want to do an interesting exercise, go and have a look at, for example, uh, Auburn playing Alabama in a football match. There's about 100,000 students watching that game. And it's a student game. So now they think that if they have a, a Auburn college team playing a, Alabama college team rugby, they're going to get 100,000 college kids watching that game. They're lucky if they're going to get 2,000. Yeah. You understand? Yeah. So that's, that is the problem. They, they're trying to base or they're trying to turn rugby into an American sport and compare it with football, baseball, basketball. It's not going to happen. Uh, it's not going to happen. Um, you know, yes, there might be more players, uh, supporters in a college game, uh, but it's never going to be a football uh, and so it's a, it's a, to answer yes, it's a big step. It's it's a big step between college and the next step, and and there's no bridge, there's no support there to to link the two. No, definitely. So I'm going to bring it full circle uh, back to the UK. Uh, yes. The ex Leeds, say Leeds Tykes, Leeds Carnegie, Yorkshire Carnegie, whichever one you want to, because <laughs> I've had a few. Uh, obviously, my local uh, my local team to go and watch. Um, what, what do you see has been their issues? Is it inconsistency? Obviously, they've been they're back down to National 1, uh, which was a massive shock. Obviously, they've had financial issues. Needed yeah. round. Where's the issues like? I know a few players have gone, come and gone in the last year. As, yeah, um, so... Coaching so, as well. So, my first... I mean, it's, it's tough for me to say because, I mean, I haven't been my finger on the pulse with the club since I left. But just... 
I can just talk from experience. When I was there and we were a pretty successful club, we were always, you know, you know, playing good rugby, you know, and we were always sort of fighting for the bottom spot, you know, but it was, it, it was great. You got to understand the first thing about that club, it's based or it's built on league. Mm-hmm. It's a rugby league club. It's not a rugby union club. Um, Leeds, it's a rugby league town or city. It's not your union city. So you got to understand the, the beast you're dealing with. You're dealing with supporters and, 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 and the culture of rugby league. Um, so now you're trying to convince them to try and watch Union. Um, it's a tough one. Um, every, there's always this banter between which, which code is the, the, the tougher code and which player is the better player. Um, there'll always be this banter between the two codes. So you've got to understand League is, is, is their number one, uh, one, number one. And all their money, all the advertising, all the marketing, everything is about, um, about the, the League. Paul Caddick at the time, he took the union side on as a, I mean, let's call it a pet project, you know, um, and he started the, the, the union side of things. Um, so, yeah, we, I, I don't think union is, is, will ever thrive there. It will never be a Leicester or a Saracens or somebody like that. No, because you, 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 you're basically fighting against the league supporters and the league mentality of the market because the marketing team the 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 ceo the chairmans all of them they all league you know mm-hmm. so they were actually like oh gosh union again what about union they <laughs> they always union was always the 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 runt of the litter mm-hmm. um, and that's and that's probably why they were trying desperately to to look at ways to 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 build it up full davies made it did a great job you know uh, Stuart lancaster ca- continued that and then all of a sudden you know, the club didn't have the funds to bring in the names to keep it at a high level. Yeah. And that's when they started, you know, in 2007, when I left, they got relegated. And I'm going to be honest, that's the reason why I left. Because we just got out of relegation um, in 2006, um, out of relegation to go to 2007. And I asked Stuart, um, who did you bring in? Who are you bringing in for this next 20, uh, 2007, 2008 season, who are you bringing in to help us stay up in the premiership? And he said, no, I'm going to work with home, homegrown talent. And I said to myself, well, if that's the case, we really struggle to get promoted from, um, from division, national division to premiership. We really struggle to, to, to get that promotion. Mm. So, and you're keeping the same squad. I'm telling you now, you're going to lose every game in premiership and you're going to get relegated again. And I don't want to play my last year losing every game. And maybe I'm being selfish, but I just decided I'm not going to play every game. I mean, I'm not going to enjoy my game, my rugby losing every game. And I knew we're going to, because we didn't have the players. We didn't have the quality of players to keep us uh, at a high competitive level in a premiership. And unfortunately, after that 2007, 2008 season, they got relegated and they never saw the premiership again since then. Um, and then all of a sudden, like I said, the funding got an issue. Coaches got an issue. You know, they were like chopping and changing coaches. They started changing the name. You know, it was just started snowboarding and, and, and it was a slippy slope and it just went downhill very fast. And, and it's sad. I mean, like I said earlier, before we went on to this meeting, is because Leeds is one of Yorkshire produces a lot of good rugby players, you know, but unfortunately like in America, where's the pathway? Where's the pathway? Yes. Doncaster Knights are there and they're a good club. You know, they've, they've been around for quite a while and they, they've got a great facility. Uh, Leeds has got a great facility, but unfortunately those are your only two clubs. Now Leeds is out, you know, Um, will a youngster travel from Harrogate or, Wherever is he going to travel all the way down to Doncaster Knights to go and play there? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, you know where, if because there's this rivalry between Leeds and Doncaster, he might not go to Doncaster. He's going to stay in Leeds. But there was no, there's unfortunately there's no pathway. Uh, we've lost the pathway there. Phil is back. Hopefully Phil can put the ship back on track. But it's going yeah. to take time. It's going to take some time because now he's a national one. He's got to go up to national. You know, and then only premiership, you know, um, and, and to, for him to do that, 
the first thing he needs is money. He needs money to be able to, to buy players, convince players to come in and build a squad. Um, and, and these players, who he's, if he's going to get them, they need to understand it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard times to get this ship back on, where, on its track. Um, and they're going to lose games. Uh, they might not do it the first year. These players must be accepting that fact that they they basically rowing two taking two steps forward but one step backwards. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the only way I see it to get this leads back on track is they need a, a financial company person. They need money, and then they need to build their squad. They need to b- rebuild their squad with players, maybe a, a young group of players that are hungry that wants to play, that's prepared to take a knock on the chin for a couple yeah. of years. And then that's the only way they, I see this hopefully coming back on track. Do you think the, 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 they need to gain the pathway again uh, as well? If you look at the likes of the premiership teams, whilst Leicester, they've got academies. Yeah. Built. Obviously, Leeds are quite lucky with the fact they've got a pretty good rugby university in Leeds Carnegie um, and Leeds Met and a couple of good ones. But at the same time, if you look around Yorkshire, they've got some bloody good sixth form schools like Queggs. They've got Bradford Grammar. They've got Silcoats. They've got some really good homegrown rugby players. No, absolutely. I mean, and, 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 and the, 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 the Yorkshire Academy actually came to our school the one night to, to come and train at our school. And it was very interesting to talk to them and everything. And, you know, and they were part of the lead set up at Kirkstall. And all of a sudden, the, the club just kicked them out and said, sorry, you're not, we, you're not part of the club anymore. So now you've got a Yorkshire Academy where all these sixth form athletes can go to, but I'm asking myself the question, why go to the Academy if I can't go any further? Mm. You know, where do I go? Yes, I can go to the Academy and I can get great coaching and go exposure and competition playing against other academies, <clears throat> but where do I go from there? And if you've, if you've got a, a, a Leeds Academy kid playing and he's pretty good why would sale academy and saracens academy and a leicester academy why will they sign a leeds academy kid if they've already got an academy Mm. you know i mean they've they've invested time and effort and money into a kid in the academy in their own academy why must they now go and sign a kid from another academy if they've got their own right at their fingertips Mm. So business, it doesn't make sense. You know, that's, that's just a waste of money. You know, now you're letting a, let's call it a tight head prop because there's a tight head prop is a special species in their own. So now they've got a brilliant tight head prop. They spend time and money in him, but now they sign one from Leeds. Now the kid that was at the academy at their own academy is gone by the wayside. Now, mm. where does that kid go? You know, so that kid gets like, oh, I spend all this time here. Where do I go? You know, so it's it, it's unfortunate. It's a it's it's a horrible business yeah. that rugby has become of chopping and changing and moving players around, and it's become like a fruit market. You know, it's like sold to the highest bidder. You know, it's 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 it's, it's, it's crazy. You know, it's, I mean, it's I don't want to bring up the whole love for the game thing. That's that's unfortunate. I don't want to bring up that topic, but you know, it, that's unfortunately what rugby has become. It's become yeah. to the highest bidder. You yeah. know, it's become an absolute a business. Um, and and I'm I'm sorry to say it, but it's taken the fun or the love of the game out of it. It's it's you know it's like I ask myself the question often. If I look at South African rugby, I remember when I used to play there, the stadiums were packed by an average of twenty five to thirty thousand people in a stadium. Now they're lucky if they get four thousand. Yeah. You know, and you ask yourself why? What's happening? Is it too much rugby? Is it easier to watch rugby on TV instead of that? Is it the tickets that are too expensive? Because a family of four, it's going to cost you about a thousand rand to go and watch a game. Would you rather take that money and, and spend it at home or, or take the family to on a holiday instead of a rugby game? Um, you know, is it, is it because the Springboks are not part of the, 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 the local team because they're playing in Europe? Is it because they're not allowed to play because they play too much rugby? You know, so that why do you want to pay, spend rugby or why do you want to go watch rugby if you don't watch your Springboks play? Mm. You know, I mean, you'll pay the ticket or you'll pay the money to go and watch your local team play if you know your internationals are going to be in the team. Am I right? You're going to, you're going to watch them play because that's who you want to see. You want to watch the internationals play. But if they're not going to play, why should you go and watch? Mm. 
Right, one last one for me. I can see Neil is uh, is bursting at the seams to ask you a scenario. <laughs> I've uh, I had a little rummage round earlier. Um, I've actually found the program from the Power Jane Cup in two thousand and five. Oh okay. wow! I know, this is uh, the eight-year-old. Eight Are you going to want to sign in? First live <laughs> rugby game as a uh, as an eight-year-old. Yeah. Um, obviously, you're in the lineup. Can you remember what what shirt you were you were part of the team sheet as wearing that day? Uh, number 14. Oh, okay. That, that was easy. Nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was number 14. At, uh, I scored the interception you try. Say, it was oh, a, a Twickenham yeah. interception try. Yeah. That's right. that, I must say, that was probably my fourth game that I remember. So, oh, there you go. <laughs> there you go. I still can't believe you went looking for a round for that. <laughs> it's my first game as a bar fan. I'll go and get it uh, signed for you if you so wish. She's only 20 minutes away from me. I'm there sure you go. We can have a beer and I'll get it signed for you. <laughs> go on then, Neil. I just said that you, you're not used to watching good rugby as a bar fan, are you, Dom? <laughs> oh, we did. It wasn't that great. I can see a few of the Leeds boys on here uh, then moved on to Bar. Yeah, I mean, Hooper, oh, no. Hooper went to Hooper. I mean, Hooper was there. Um, I'm trying to think who else was in the team. Um, Bolshaw, Biggs. Bolshaw, Biggs, yeah. Uh, Dickens uh, at Scrum Half. Yeah, he's coaching at Northampton now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Alan Dickens. So, yeah, that's a little uh, blast from the past for you. Yep. Go on, Neil. It won't be worth the wait. I promise you it will not be worth the wait. <laughs> uh, so we've been asking all our guests a lockdown and rugby-related question. I say we, I have been. I have been. Um, right, the situation is, or the scenario, you've got to be on lockdown with a player you've played with in your career. Um, you're on lockdown for two weeks. You literally <clears> cannot leave the house. You're having people bringing food to you. So you're with this person for two weeks solid. Now, of everyone you've ever played with, who would make it an absolute living hell and why? Oh, a living hell? Yeah. That was kind of thought I thought you said, who's going to make it easy for you? No, we're, not, <laughs> no, we're not here to be nice. We need to throw someone <laughs> in. <laughs> oh, gosh. Uh, living hell. Um, uh, let me think. Who couldn't you survive two weeks with? Um, oh, gosh. That's a good question, actually. Um, <laughs> There's a couple that comes to mind. Um, they will be tagged. <laughs> I mean, by no means. He's a hell of a nice guy. Okay. I do love his sense of humor to a point, but it will probably be Mark Regan. Right. Okay. Why? Why is that? Okay. Mean? Why? First of all, when he talks or speaks, I struggle to understand what he's trying to say. Okay. <laughs> Um, he's, 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 uh, he's quite opinionated and everything he wants and does is his way. Uh, but like I say, I mean, I love him to bits. I mean, he's a really nice guy, but I think after two weeks, he's going to be too much. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, and, and his jokes, you know, is borderline. <clears throat> I don't understand them. Probably the South African in me. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> and he's got this saying like, er, Bob. Here you're a bad. 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 you um, if you ever want to come across and have a cheeky uh, couple of sessions with us in Huddersfield. <laughs> well, <laughs> funny enough, uh, unfortunately, your, one of your, uh, what, how would I say it, your, uh, your rivals just up the road, Huddersfield uh, Rugby Club. Yep. They've, uh, they've approached me as well. So they're also one of the clubs Ooh. that's uh, reached out to me. So we've got a South African uh, ex-international South African rugby league player as our coach at the moment and he'd love to have you yeah no exactly and I've also spoken to obviously at my local club Redford I've spoken to them as well and uh, and uh, obviously Leeds uh, Phil Davies have uh, spoken to me to get come back to Leeds as well <coughs> so uh, there's, a, there's a few fingers in the pie and uh, hopefully by the end of this week um, you know I'll have a, more of a 
the direction of who I will be uh, committing to as a as a coach or assistant coach. I can't do a head coach position. I have to be an assistant because of my role at the school. Um, but yeah, I mean, if um, I would love to help, even if it's a, an afternoon session at your club, just come around and chat to the boys. I mean, I don't think uh, it stops me from doing that. Uh, I would love to do that. Excellent. I will more than happily. Uh, we'll, we'll expect to see you at a Dodger Sevens tournament at some point in the future when we can start playing again, obviously. Oh, gosh. I hope, uh, do you have a wheelchair ready for me for after the game? We'll have yeah. a pair of boots, a wheelchair, <laughs> and a shirt for you. Don't worry. Yeah, we'll there you go. Good. One of the tournaments yeah. will be in Leeds at some point. So, Jungle Sevens will be happening. All right. Keep me posted. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very, thank much, you very much. All right, boys. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Okay.